Hi, everyone. I'm Rosemary Eldridge. I'm the Communications Director and Program Director at the Catholic Information Center. Thank you for joining us for Evangelizing in an Anxious Age, a Catholic moral response to bigotry. Our speakers today are Monty Alvarado, Vice President and Executive Director of Beckett, and Lewis Brown, Executive Director of the Christ Medicus Foundation. You can learn more about our speakers by visiting our website at CICDC.org or reading the event description below. So we're going to go ahead and get right into it and started. Lewis, I'd love for you to take the screen and share your reflections on the murder of George Floyd um, and the subsequent uh, protests, as well as just your personal experience with racism in general. Yeah, thanks, Rosemary. I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, have a conversation with you guys and talk with you all about this. Um, when I first saw the video of George Floyd, it was, it was highly disturbing. Um, um, you know, clear that he was unjustly killed. Uh, also clear uh, to me that uh, it was murder, right? Not just that he died, but that it, it was murder. Um, and it's very painful. It's very painful. Um, it recalled back to me, as I've said in other venues, uh, my first full realization that this was a massive issue, probably uh, in the late 80s, seeing different uh, films and documentaries about the civil rights movement and seeing footage from the 60s of the awful uh, brutality at the hands of police in the South, uh, but also being aware that that was an issue in the North uh, and even uh, to an extent, I think that's an issue in, in certain cities, uh, even to this day, much less so. Obviously, there's been great advances. And it brought to mind um, very much the images of Rodney King in 1991 and his beating um, that, you know, thank God he didn't die, but it was on tape. And regardless of what led up to that, uh, what happened with Rodney King in 91, and folks can see the film, uh, from it, it was savage. And what happened in 1992, uh, in the fall of 1992 in Detroit, uh, not that long after Rodney King to a gentleman named Alice Green who actually died. And uh, some of those police officers were convicted uh, of committing crimes. And just dealing with that as uh, a Catholic man, number one, which I am first and foremost, first and last, but also doing it with as an African-American. And it brings to mind, uh, the, the issue of race. We've made tremendous advantage, advances, Rosemary, uh, over the last several hundred years, and obviously since the Civil War and the abolition of slavery. Um, but people forget that um, the legal end of African Americans being second-class citizens in the United States of America really didn't happen until uh, the mid to late 60s. Uh, and then even in the 70s, you had awful situations of uh, uh, white supremacist organizations, the KKK, doing uh, bombings of school buses, even in the 70s, uh, to uh, discourage busing uh, in places like Detroit and also similar situations, perhaps not bombings, but awful situations even in Boston. And this is, there's an issue, I think, what we're dealing with in, in the United States generally. We know that most, the overwhelming majority of police officers are phenomenal people. They're amazing people. And I've worked with police officers quite a bit, uh, particularly early on in my career uh, for two years, really. And then also when I was at HHS, worked a lot with justice officials, phenomenal people. But we have a condition in our society and in our national psyche where for a lot of folks, um, dark skin and black skin just isn't quite as valuable. We don't know what was in the heart of the officer we have no idea, um, but there was something in that interaction that said that this person's life just doesn't matter. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a serious problem for all of us as Catholics, for all of us as Americans. We've made tremendous advances. The United States is the best country in the world, but we have a long way to go. Um, and we have to address it both with prayer, with action, uh, and other things that we'll talk about. So that's initially what came to mind for me. Why don't you uh, jump in a little bit and, and share your experience with, um, you know, with racism from, you know, your experience growing up as an immigrant in Miami, and then obviously your, your own reflections on, on the murder of George and, and the protesting. 
Yeah. Um, first, I, I always, uh, Lewis knows that I um, care about him. He's a good friend. And I think that it's wonderful that he's willing to be vulnerable and share, you know, some personal reflections on this, because one of the things that I always tell people is um, we are made so perfectly individual, you know, so unique. God has fashioned us in this beautiful way and knows everything about us. And he's the only one that knows how we're thinking and how we experience things. So you can never go into someone else's, or actually you can try, but you'll never actually know what that person is going through and what it feels like. And I know that that day, um, the day that the um, video came out with um, with this, this horrible, you know, eight minutes, what, eight minutes and 46 seconds, right? Um, I know that I will never know what it felt like for him. And I can never assume that. Um, but I do know what it felt like for me. And I remember standing in my mom's living room as she was in, in the kitchen. And we watched this together because it came up on the screen. Um, and my heart started racing because I remembered all of the moments where I'd been in a situation where I felt like I didn't know what a police officer was going to do to me. Um, my parents have big accents. I was born in Mexico City. People assume because I don't have a big accent that, even though I think I do, um, that I'm a well-adjusted immigrant, right? Um, and I, I don't suffer from any of the, the typical kind of prejudices that people have against, particularly Mexicans um, in, in white communities. And my parents always got the short end of the stick in the service line. Um, they were always treated differently because we were Mexican growing up in a Cuban community. Um, that was a big thing. There's a lot of kind of inter-Latin American, inter-Caribbean, uh, inter, um, even within the, the Black community in the United States, the African-American community versus um, people who emigrate from North Africa um, or Africa in general, the different tones of skin. All of that stuff matters. And it makes this issue really emotional and really complicated. And, um, and lived experiences, um, people who haven't experienced racism, wow, I'm so glad that you haven't. But most people have. And it's painful. And it scars you. And it makes you look over your shoulder in many different ways. Um, and it also um, makes you lead with fear. Um, I love coming to the CIC. And I, as I was reflecting on what I wanted to say, um, one of the things that came to me is at the CIC, you go to confession and if you end up meeting someone out there to have a like Starbucks coffee or something on a Saturday, there aren't a lot of people on the street, but there are definitely a lot of um, homeless people who are part of the CIC community, right? And I walked out a couple of weeks ago um, and there was someone there who wasn't necessarily part of that community of people that you usually see outside. And, um, and he followed me to the Metro and he was a kind of, he was shorter than me, a little stockier, you know, um, looked pretty strong, was carrying a bunch of bags and stuff. And my heart went up and started kind of running, thinking like, okay, there's a man following me. And I looked at him and he was obviously a black man. And I turned around and I said, what's your name? Cause you're following me. And if you're following me, you know, like what's going on? And he's like, oh, my name's Muhammad. I'm a Muslim convert. This, this is that. All of a sudden we had this conversation and the tension just went away because he didn't know what I was going to do. And I didn't know what he was going to do. Right. And so for me, the reason that I bring that up is that a lot of it is in the one-on-one -on -one interaction and in the unknown about each other. And I bet that people who treated my parents unfairly didn't even realize that they had this deep bias and my parents, I know for a fact, when we have these discussions, didn't know they were being discriminated against. Didn't realize that my experience with those same vendors was different from the experience that they were gonna have. They assumed it was normal. They assumed it was part of moving to the US in 1993 when a lot of these race relation issues in Miami were really front and center. Um, so that's my experience. And as a Catholic, it's just remembering that um, I'm different you know, worship style is different, language is different, um, and but I am part of a bigger, broader Catholic church. And depending on where I go, I don't necessarily see a mirror um, and a place for me, but I definitely see a place for me in the right, because the right is the same. Um, and the beauty of our church is that you can go to mass in any language in any country, and it's exactly the same. There is no discrimination in the way that the Eucharist manifests itself in our, in our religion. Right, I can add on to that. I mean, I think, um, you know, I've definitely had tremendous, you know, many experiences um, where I knew that I was being treated uh, a little differently um, because I'm an African-American. And 
Um, it's important to step back and say, you know, very consistent with what Monty's talking about, but it's important to step back and say that um, no race, color, ethnic group has cornered the market on racism. I've seen uh, black folks discriminated against white folks. Um, I've seen black folks discriminated against South Asians. I've seen white folks discriminated against various races, including black, black Americans. I've seen Latinos handed to blacks, blacks handed to Latinos. This is an equal opportunity disease, okay? It's a sin, right? Um, at the same time, there's a particular history in the United States that we have to be aware of. And, um, you know, immigrants came to this country and, you know, freely and experienced uh, awful discrimination and were kept out of certain, uh, you know, industries and jobs and neighborhoods and all of that, right? And that's all really, there's pain there and there's suffering there. Um, but there's a particularly, particular unique history of what African Americans uh, have gone through, um, of what Chicano, Latino, Hispanics have gone through in various parts of the United States, and particularly Native Americans as well, um, that um, is egregious. And it's complicated, right? You know, um, some of the folks that sold uh, uh, Africans into slavery were African, uh, from African tribes, right? So it's complicated, right? Um, but what we're talking about, particularly with African-Americans is 400, you know, couple hundred years of slavery followed by, you know, close to about a hundred years where we were legally in much of the United States, uh, second-class citizens, right? And again, that ended to an extent in the sixties, got a little bit better in the seventies, but you don't change societal perceptions you know, hundreds of years of societal perceptions that if you have a lot of color, uh, if, if, if you're not white, uh, particularly if you're African-American, you used to be a slave, you used to be property, um, all of a sudden it's all good and you're the same and I'm gonna treat you the same way. Um, and so we have to deal with it. Uh, we have to continue to deal with that as, as particularly as Christians, as Catholics. And recognizing that as Catholics, that we have the fullness of freedom and liberation uh, you know, in human history, love through Jesus Christ. Um, we look at this, I think, chiefly in, in two particular ways. Um, the first way is that this, this, that racism is a sin. We know that it's a sin. Um, and oftentimes it is a, a serious mortal sin. And as my sister and I have talked about the wound of racism, um, and really she, you know, this is coming from a lot of her discernment, but it's just a reality. When someone commits a sin or someone commits a crime, um, it wounds the victim, obviously, but it also gravely wounds the perpetrator so that both are wounded, um, both on a natural level and also on a spiritual level. And so as we understand that there's these this reality of hundreds of years of this particular type of sin in the United States, um, and, and in particular, serious violations of a person's human dignity because of how they look, serious and grave violations of their human dignity because of how they look. Um, it violates uh, the inheritance that God has given each human person, that they're made in the image and likeness of God and entitled to certain dignity and respect that no one uh, should take away because it's a child of God. They're made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, but it's also a, a violation as well of the gospel of life that comes from the gospel. It's a violation of the commandment that God gave us that we should love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our mind, with all our strength, with all our soul, and love our neighbor as ourselves. right? And if that's the fullness of the law, what I just said is the fullness of the law, every time we we act in a discriminatory manner, either individually um, or institutionally, it's a massive problem. We're getting the law wrong. I mean, the law of God, which is the fullness of love and freedom and truth and beauty. And so we have to deal with that um, within the historical context we're in, but also on a personal level. Uh, and we just need to deal with it. 
but it should be within the moral hierarchy, hierarchy. The racism going on today, it's, it's real, it's out there. We don't know what, the, what was in the officer's heart, but it's, it's, a, it's a problem. But we know that there's, there's also other grave societal ills that are fundamentally um, really the nucleus of, of these other societal ills. There's other foundational ills that are causing uh, these additional societal ills like racism. So we have to look at it in the context of a moral hierarchy uh, as well. Um, Lewis, we, uh, or Monty talked on it a little bit, you know, we're all friends outside of this forum and sure, right. well, you shared your experience, you know, um, you know, before you got involved in the religious liberty movement, um, you were involved in civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that and how your transformation within the church helped you see this issue as like a whole human, um, like a, like a human dignity issue? Right. Sure. Um, Sure, you know, I went to K through 12 Catholic school and uh, within the Archdiocese of Detroit and suburban Detroit um, and was always pro-life. Um, you know, my, my mother first told me about an abortion, probably when, you know, about the reality of abortion, maybe when I was seven or eight or nine years old. And I remember, you know, being in our living room, like, well, mom, it's a baby, like, what are you talking about? You know, it's ridiculous, right? Um, but I think that, and I know in college and in law school, um, there's a way of thinking about uh, civil rights that's not based on uh, the natural law. And there can be a lot of confusion which, with where our civil rights come from. Um, there's this sense that our civil rights come from the state. Uh, there's a sense that our civil rights uh, come from the, uh, from the majority, the majority of a country saying that we have civil rights. So it's this thing called positivism that our rights are whatever the majority says they are. Um, or that, um, you know, there's some level of the sense that we have some human dignity because we're all human beings. We're part of this, this human family. Uh, and it stops there. But the reality is, and we're seeing this now, uh, particularly with the aftermath of what happened with, with George Floyd, um, that human dignity, human rights, civil rights only make sense if it's an inherent quality in every human person connected to some, some level of dignity and rights that exist inherently within the person. Um, without that, if my rights are whatever the majority believes they are, you know, Chris Cuomo kind of basically from CNN famously said within the last year or two, well, our rights come from the state. Well, if that's true, um, then the state was correct 120 or 30 years ago that my rights really came um, from the state and therefore the state was legitimate in saying that I'm property, you know, that I'm not a human being or that I'm three-fifths of a person. The state was right even in the District of Columbia in saying you know, 50, 60 years ago that I couldn't go to certain restaurants uh, the, the state was right in, in, or let's say even say that, um, you know, the, 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 I know of a parish in the District of Columbia that is at least as late as the 50s, segregated the congregation and had whites go to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ first and African-American second, that they were correct in that, right? But moving back to the state, if, if it's this notion that our rights are whatever we want them to be, um, that's how you get into very dangerous places where, where what we saw in Europe throughout most of the 20th century, where at some point, the majority of a population says, you no longer have rights, and so we can get rid of them. But in reality, the turn came for me mostly, Rosemary, in this awareness that no, all of our rights, as we see it in the Declaration of Independence, they come from the Lord, they come from God, that we're created, uh, and it's all connected to our right, right to life. The quote that does it the most for me that I quote all day, every day, all the time um, is what John Paul II said in a, a post uh, synodal letter in 1988, that the right to work, the right to health, uh, the right to housing, all of these uh, human rights, all of these civil rights, not that government should guarantee them, but all these rights that we have um, are false and illusory 
if the right to life is not defended with maximum determination. And so if our human and civil rights aren't connected to the natural law, the reality that we, that we are given certain things that were created equal, um, they all can be destroyed based on a whim. Uh, and so that's kind of maybe a, a, as short as I can get in terms of my, um, my elevation of understanding that these rights should be given from the unborn uh, all the way to natural death. Lewis, I think you make a good point there. Um, one, talking about the life issue, Bishop Murray, God rest his soul, who recently passed away, and he was part of the National Black Catholic Congress. He was a big spokesperson for, outside of Chicago, I believe, right? Coming, out of, coming from Chicago on how mm -hmm. the pro-life issue and the racism issue are intimately tied. If you can't right. see a future for that child, why would you allow it to live? If you know that that child is gonna end up dead in the future, why? There's a reasoning there that forces women into these abortion clinics, which is where is the future for this child? If my child's just gonna end up dead at the hands of this police officer, or my child's gonna end up in jail and have no future from there, why would I place them into this system, right? Give right. them this life. We know right. that that's a false reality, right? We know as pro-life people that there's a lot that we can do and resources and organizations that help you make the right choice. We also know that there's a false choice but that's been given to women making them think that they actually have a choice, which right now we know that our system doesn't give them a choice. But um, putting that together, that framework that you described, I think is spot on. Um, and also then speaks to the discussion on kind of who chooses our civil rights if the state is in charge of our rights. So one of the things that made me really reflect on the reality of how the government, state level governments, and also, well, not right now, the federal government, but in, in the past, um, does believe that our rights come from the government rather than from God or a higher philosophical power, if you want to go there, is the protests and the demonstrations. The moment that we were fighting as an organization, and when I say we, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, to reopen churches on par with businesses. That's all, we were looking for parity and equality, mm -hmm. right? Even though we know right. that religion has a, a special place that's protected within our constitutional rights and our First Amendment rights. And so it actually reserves even more protection. Um, but just getting that parity, the moment that the protests broke out and government officials were participating in processions and kneeling side by side in moments of silence, which are moments of prayer in my mind, um, if you can do that, you can open up churches. And if you can do that as a government official, you are making discretionary judgments about which civil rights matter and which ones don't. And that's wrong and it's unconstitutional. You don't get to make those judgments. The constitution tells you what you can and can't do. And ultimately, like you were saying, in terms of natural law, we know in our hearts that there are certain issues that are incredibly important and these are painful to talk about. Obviously you have painful experiences. Right. Um, and, but that doesn't make them, those discussions any less um, important to have in a religious context, context as well. What would have it been like if you could have had funeral services around the country that allowed us to share as a community in this painful moment? I know that for me, I wanted to go to church. I wanted to talk to the you know, religious leaders that I know in their hearts look at me as just another congregant, just another parishioner, just another child of God. I wanted to be seen in that way. And I can't imagine the number of people around the country who wanted that as well you know, who wanted that moment of solace when there was so much kind of pain and despair, and there still is so much pain and despair and confusion about how to talk about this issue. So there's definitely, there are constitutional issues at stake here. And like you said, some real societal burdens that we have to deal with as a community. Um, and and we can't deal with them if we're all kind of not able to connect with each other. Yeah, that, that's right, uh, Matsya, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, what, what we're seeing, there's two things. Um, if we think about it as Catholics and then we think about this as, as Americans, as, as Catholics that are also American. Um, we're Catholic first. <laughs> yes, that's right, that's right, exactly. That's exactly correct. Um, and so we put, we, we look at all things, we start with the spirit of God, not the spirit of the world. Um, and let me, if, if I could reach back to some of us had the pleasure of attending mass uh, with Cardinal Mueller on January 1st, the solemnity um, of, the, of Mary, uh, the mother of God, and on January 1st, 2020. And he, his homily was very prophetic. He talked about 
the spirit of God versus the spirit of the world. And for us as Catholics, particularly when we're facing these national crises, whether it's the issue with Mr. Floyd or it's the issue with regard to the pandemic and, and who's right and who do we listen to, we start with the spirit of God, not the spirit of the world. And so that means in all things, God created matter, God created science, God created medicine. Um, we come to things with faith and reason, but with the spirit of God, with the Holy Spirit and all that that means. And so when we first look at um, what happened to Mr. Floyd as a Catholic, um, we have to speak out on these issues and also after listening to the Lord, take action. Um, number one, because um, every human life has value, number one. And justice demands um, that we provide that witness. We're morally obligated to provide that witness. We know, as Monsignor Pope talked about on Sunday, uh, that we are our brother's keeper, that we should, that we should act in love uh, and not commit the same sin um, uh, that we see uh, between Cain and Abel, where, where Cain uh, struck his brother down. And so as Catholics, we have an obligation to love because that's what we were made for. And so to the degree that we can, we act in love towards Mr. Floyd or to other past, present, or future Mr. Floyds out there that are unjustly killed, that are murdered um, uh, as, as a Catholic. But number two, it's part of our witness if we fail to have an integrated witness uh, as to the gospel of life, as to the gospel of love and freedom, which is why Jesus Christ came and that's what we were made for, um, we diminish um, the reality of Jesus Christ. We, we diminish our brothers and sisters. We diminish why Christ came. We diminish why we're here. We're all made to love, to serve, and to praise God and be with him in this life and life everlasting. If we don't move for uh, societal conditions that allow that to, to, to be the reality, um, we're not giving proper glory to God. So that's the Catholic perspective. From a perspective as an American, uh, two things. First, with uh, Mr. Floyd, we talked about how it's a grave deprivation of his right to life. His right to life was not defended with maximum determination. Um, that's a, that's a, it's a moral outrage. It's a massive problem. Um, when it comes to the, the pandemic, we see very serious violations of the right to religious freedom. Um, we don't know, we'll never know on this side of life, uh, but the fact that uh, folks didn't have access to the sacraments as they were dying, uh, the fact that we had state and local officials that were, um, uh, in my opinion, uh, infringing on the First Amendment rights of churches and houses of worship. Um, that was a grave injustice. And we know these things come together in the sense that the foundation, the, the, the two twin towers, if we want, the, the twin holy towers for those, are, that are, those of us that are Lord of the Rings fans, but the two twin towers or the two foundation stones for all human and civil rights in the world, for us as humans, is the right to life from conception to natural death and the right to religious freedom. My right first to live and breathe and live out the gift that God has given me, number one. And number two, the right of religious freedom, the right to, to act, to love, to care, to think consistent with my moral and religious convictions. Both of those rights, and, and this is what the work of the Christ Medicus Foundation, particularly religious freedom, as it, it applies into healthcare, both the right to life and the right to religious freedom are under extraordinary threats throughout American society. We see that in law enforcement uh, to an extent, even though most law enforcement officials are phenomenal, but it's an issue uh, when it comes to law enforcement and particularly in the criminal justice system, um, when we look at you know who's locked up and who's not. But it's also a vital problem. It's a vital issue, particularly in healthcare, where the right to life, the right to religious freedom isn't being respected. And what could be coming, what we believe, many of us believe and I believe is coming is, is an enormous storm. And really it's here, uh, but it's coming even faster than we thought, I think in part because of the pandemic. And so we have to, with love as our weapon, fight for religious freedom uh, and fight for life across all spheres of American society. 
Um, and these things come together because they are, they are the foundation. They are the basis for all civil and human rights. If we don't fight for life in a consistent way, if we don't fight for religious freedom in a consistent way, um, our human and civil rights will collapse and America, the United States of America as we know it, um, will not endure. And that's the stakes of what we face right now. Uh, Lewis, this is a great segue um, into the next point that I'd like to, to talk about. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that Catholics in general are not afraid to um, stand up and fight for what we believe to be the truth, um, to fight for social justice, obviously with all the work that the Catholic Church does, you know, with the homeless, with um, economic inequality, with um, through abortion and religious liberty. Um, but in this moment and with this particular issue, we're having a lot of information thrown at us through social media and, um, you know, through the mainstream media and other news um, outlets. What are ways that we as Catholics, how can we respond in a godly way to fight this intrinsic evil of racism within our church um, and within our culture? Um, and how can we make the Catholic Church a more inclusive um, home? Matsu, you want to go first? <laughs> or I can, I can go. I can. You didn't hear me laugh. Um, oh, I, you know, I mean, we've talked about this and I'll, it's, it's easy. I think there are a couple of things. If you want to address the, how do we make it more inclusive? It's personal. Um, one of the beauties of the fact that we're chatting today is that yesterday was, you know, Trinity Sunday. And I heard from a friend of mine who's actually not Catholic, but um, again, diversity and the people that you um, that you speak to is important. And she reminded me of the nature of the Trinity. And, um, and I really had a moment reflecting on that because we uh, worship a God that is in relationship with himself, who models relationships for us in the most beautiful way, um, three in one, right? And um, the reality is that the only way to change this and the only way to see our church reflected um, in that love of Christ is to be in relationship with other people who are not like us to be, seek out these friendships and seek out these um, moments of exchange so that you can share your lived experiences and try to counter through firsthand, um, not just conversations, but also um, going into, you know, going into neighborhoods that you're not comfortable with, going into um, places that you normally wouldn't go, not because you're exploring out of an experiment, but because you're genuinely curious how other people live um, and how other people worship. Uh, within your own faith, because it is your community, it's your heritage, it's my, as a Catholic, it's my universe, my universal church that I need to get to know, that I'm charged with getting to know, because my brother or sister um, is, has that same dignity, but also is in communion with me in the body of Christ. So you're completely right, Lewis, in talking about it as the sin of racism, but it's also the sin of um, kind of um, arrogance, thinking that we know everything, that we know sure. everyone, we know everything about our church, we can assume things about each other. I know, I know that I know nothing about someone else's lived experience, like I mentioned. And so getting to know each other and being in a relationship and in community, truly understanding that the body of Christ is rich with differences and different people, and that every single one of those is just as valuable and just as important. Um, and, and, and losing the fear, losing that fear of encounter and getting to know each other, because that also then will bring us to true evangelization, um, evangelizing other people's hearts, but also our own. Right, yeah, um, couldn't agree more. I think listening, uh, as someone close to me said recently, listening is very important right now. Um, first, listening to the Holy Spirit, um, uh, really, really listening to the Holy Spirit and what he's uh, placing on one's heart for you know, a book I encourage everyone that's watching to purchase from, if possible, the Catholic Information Center is, um, is The Power of Silence um, by Cardinal Seurat. It's a phenomenal book. It's a phenomenal read. Um, and he talks about um, that the reality that with God, who is, who is all that is good, who is beyond our comprehension, um, you get to a place and to a certain point where there's nothing that needs to be said. You, you, you only desire to, to contemplate um, and a certain, and through silence. 
And in a certain way, I think for all of us, regardless of whether we're white, black, brown, doesn't, you know, doesn't matter, um, we, myself included, we need to listen more, first to the Holy Spirit and, and secondarily um, to our family members, to our, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, to our colleagues, particularly folks that are different from us. Um, and that humility um, should, I think, draw our hearts to the fullness of the face of God and something to extend off of what Monsi talks about. The fullness of the faith of God is largely, uh, partially expressed in the universality of the church, the universality of the church, that we don't have a black church, we don't have a brown church, we don't have a white church, we don't have a European church, we don't have an American church. Yes, we have these experiences and these expressions, and to an extent we're all part of the church in the United States of America, there is an American church, but we have the universal church, um, which reflects the vast um, uh, uh, complexity and texture uh, and beauty of God and so many different forms and languages and looks and experiences. And it recalls to mind the, the saying of uh, Pope Benedict uh, when he, I believe when he was Pope, or perhaps before when he was Cardinal, that, you know, on a certain sense, there's one way to the Lord, right, through our Catholic faith, one full way to the Lord. But on another sense, um, there's as many, there's, you know, as many billion people that are on the face of the planet, uh, because there's so many different ways. And embracing the universality of the church, um, ex accepting, obeying with love and expectation, the sacred traditions of the church, but also, um, giving way to the Holy Spirit's creativity when it comes to the human traditions of the church, that my way may not be someone else's way, not on the sacred traditions, but on the human traditions and being open to that. Also, lastly, realizing, as we spoke earlier, the church in the United States is changing in that the majority of millennials are Chicano, Latino, Hispanic, Catholics in the United States. We need to get on board. If we're a church on mission, if we're evangelizing, this is not a political statement, it's just the reality we need to use everything we have in the kitchen sink to love, accompany, learn from, be formed by our brothers and sisters who may be different than us. And that's, it's our pride that gets in the way, my pride included, all of our pride that gets in the way of, of reflecting the newness and creativity of the Holy Spirit uh, as a church and in our evangelization efforts and our efforts to build up the community. Yeah, I'm with you there, Lewis. I think that's true in terms of the composition of the church and trying to really get to know who's a part of our church. Again, that like walking into other neighborhoods. Um, some of the pieces that have been most confusing for me that I think you can speak to, um, but I'll give you kind of a framework of how I think about it. Um, when I think about the dignity of the human person, I also try to think about the moment. So in my in my personal life, I, 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 the life issue is an issue for me. And I think I described kind of how I think about it in correlation with racism, right? But in this moment right now, it's really tempting to try to kind of mesh things together. And we've been taught through intersectionality to only think about everything at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think about the body of Christ and right now, if I break my hand, I'm gonna put a cast on my hand because it's my hand that's broken. Mm -hmm. There's a piece of the body of Christ right now that is in a lot of pain. Right. And we can't ignore that. And it's the moment to be curious about why they're in pain and why um, why it feels this way and what's kind of right and wrong about that moment. You know, why riots and violence are wrong. Why um, reform for in, you know, looking for legal reforms and changes that are happening around the country. I mean, this has been a catalyst for change. Um, you know, the, the, the murder of George Floyd was not for naught, right? There actually have been effects and, and, and knowing and seeing and that pain that you felt in watching that video is having results around the country. However, and those are good. However, the, the violence that came with it and the unrest that came with it um, was a sign of a confluence of a lot of things, of people being mm -hmm. shut in, of people being kind of, um, put up to doing things that they probably wouldn't have done on their own. Um, there, there are a lot of kind of confusing pieces. And so for me, I feel like we all want to talk about all of the things at the same time, but there's this one part of the body that's hurting that we are not really listening to. And I don't know if you would agree with that. Yeah, I, I do agree with it. And it's, it's a, it's a massive issue. I know it's something that I can definitely do better on. Um, right. And I think you're right. When a certain part of the body 
is really hurting, you need to, you need to with haste, go to that part of the body. Um, and I think because of, of the history and a lot of, you know, particularly as Catholics, because of the really difficult history and a lot of, and a lot of cities throughout the United States, maybe not the majority, but a lot of, you know, separate, separate Catholic churches for whites and for blacks, or, uh, you know, difficulties, you even see this with the amazing documentary about Clarence Thomas, difficulties African-Americans had with going even into Catholic seminaries, or the segregation that took place in some places. And I know for a fact, based on the testimony of a deacon here in, in Washington, D.C., the, the, you know, segre segregated congregations at mass, which is unthinkable. And talk about a sacrilege. Oh, my goodness, you know. Um, and so that compounds if we look at this situation of police misconduct, the history of police brutality in the United States, and, and just say, pray. Prayer is the most important thing. It moves mountains. It's absolutely necessary and vital. If you're not praying, you're not doing anything. Um, but we also have to, to act to change things because when, I think when you, you know, I think even Pope Francis perhaps uses this analogy, but when someone's house is on fire, when they're in grave pain um, and you have an opportunity to, to, to put the fire out, but you, you refuse to act, it's a, it can be a sin of omission. Um, and so we have a lot of African-Americans, um, uh, many of whom are Catholic. There's a lot more Catholic African-Americans than a lot of people realize. If they don't feel like they're heard, if they don't feel like they're supported, if, if, if also folks aren't coming to them saying, hey, I need to listen to you as opposed to tell you what I think, um, there's a massive problem. And again, it's a failure of love. That's what we're dealing with. And that's, that's, that's something we have to meet. At the same time as this is all going on, and we, you, you recognize that people are hurting, not just because of what they saw last week, but be also because of what they saw in Georgia, but also because of what they saw with Breonna Taylor, where uh, you know, police executed a search warrant uh, at the home uh, of a woman, and they got the wrong person, and she wound up being killed. Okay, It's not just this. It's seeing this for African-Americans and adults it's your whole life. And it, it, it's not just the, the police misconduct that's resulted in people being killed. It's also all the excessive force for years. And it's very hurtful when some of our friends want to only talk about right now the rioting or the looting. Because it's like, you don't care. Because like it's very hurtful when it's like, that could have been me. And like, they're not hearing me. Or it's very hurtful when they want to just talk about all the horrible things that this person may have done before, before that encounter that, that caused them to be murdered. Uh, uh, but they don't want to talk about the injustice that was done when it just seems like they don't care about you. That hurts. And, and so again, it's a failure of the heart. It's a failure of of love. And so we have to take a real look at that and we have to change as Catholics. And again, ask the Lord to heal our hearts, ask the Holy Spirit to heal our hearts, do that self-examination, uh, the examination of conscience to understand what are my biases. I know I have biases. I know for a fact, you know, everyone has biases. Um, and so this is a real issue. At the same time, somewhat to Monty's point, we have to, as we're as we're, you know, I, first of all, I would say use the acronym pray. It's a little cheesy perhaps, but number one, pray, you know, number two, um, seek reconciliation with those that might be different around you, either in your family, in your communities, in your church, your colleagues, particularly those of a different race or color, right? So you pray, seek the reconciliation, even if it's not a race issue, seek healing and forgiveness where the Holy Spirit can really free you and then act. Act if there's an issue with your local police department, if there's an issue with your county or state police department, um, if there's a way that you can show solidarity and get involved, act, right? And lastly, continue to yield to the Holy Spirit. So those things all need to be done. But at the same time, 
the rioting and the looting and the way that um, Mr. Floyd's death and the police misconduct and brutality that we've been seeing the last few weeks, it's being used um, to co-opt um, what should be the furtherance of civil rights to advance uh, really ideologies um, and violence that is antithetical uh, to the right to life. It's antithetical to preserving and protecting human dignity. And it really ultimately furthers the culture of death. And so the rioting and the looting needs to be rejected. The demonization of all police officers needs to be rejected. Um, the desire to uh, replace um, uh, the righteous anger with hatred or wrath or violence, unjust violence, that all needs to be rejected. And any use of this tragedy uh, to advance an agenda that only would destroy human rights and civil rights and human dignity, that all needs to be rejected. And that's going on right now in massive ways with different forces across the country. Reject the culture of death. Don't let this be co-opted to advance the culture of death. We have to use it uh, as it should be, as every African-American wants us to be, to advance life, to advance civil rights, to advance human dignity. Um, we've talked about in the past um, that unfortunately there is this false narrative that the Catholic Church is a church of white people. And you touched a little bit, Lewis, that there are more um, African-American Catholics than are visible. Um, could you, and Monty as well, I think you have a list of um, organizations um, that are really uh, centered on the African-American voice within the church. Could you uh, talk, could you both talk about those a little bit? first, yeah. I always say, like, just Google it, you know, <laughs> because it's so clear. I mean, I don't know if anyone saw the beautiful statement that came out from the Knights of Peter Claver, but that is a, you know, an order that rivals the membership of the Knights of Columbus and is alongside the membership of the Knights of Columbus. Obviously, again, with appropriate focus on the history of African Americans in this country, like there is, there's an appropriate focus there, but their statement was just so beautiful and so pastoral and spoke again to the dignity of the human being and what we're pursuing as individuals. And um, so there are a bunch of organizations. I mentioned the one that um, Bishop Murray was a part of the um, National Black uh, Congress, uh, Catholic Congress, and there are, there are a couple of others. And, and the same for other you know, racial minorities. He was on the USCCB committee to combat racism. I don't think a lot of people know that that exists. There is a real committee dedicated to thinking about these issues and how we can do better as a church to advocate for racial minorities um, and to kind of call out some of this um, violence and discrimination and try to heal our country from these deep, deep wounds. I mean, generational sin is real. <laughs> Right, it and is. we inherit it, right? And we learn it from our families. This is, and I love that you said, Lewis, um, I, you have preferences. We all have predisposed notions about another person. We all have this in our minds and it's silly to believe that we could actually get rid of them because it all depends on what you've been exposed to as you grow um, and what, where you go with your life and what your experience is. Um, and some of this violence and some of this, um, uh, some of the discrimination that we that we see, we carry with us in our hearts because we're deeply wounded people who in a very, um, in a perfect world, we would be able to forgive immediately. But that's why we have the sacraments. That's why we have confession. That's why we kind of beg for forgiveness to cleanse, to clear our hearts and be in a state of grace. But there is right. no such thing as a sinless person. So my desire for vengeance against the person who was, you know, mean to me or targeted my parents or some of this violence and hatred that comes from righteous anger, right? There is a place for um, acknowledging the sin, acknowledging the injustice and calling it out. Um, but it shouldn't turn into, the response shouldn't be one of hatred. Um, and, and I think that you've kind of gone in the right direction there. And, and in, in talking about diversity in the church, it's just lack of um, information and lack of desire, I would say, to know that our church is bigger and broader. And we have to kind of do that self-examination and look in the mirror and say, like I mentioned, do I know Catholics that don't look like me? Do I know Catholics that don't speak um, a different, that speak a different language than I do? Do I get mad that there's a Spanish language mass at my parish, uh, rather than trying to figure out why there's a Spanish language mass at my parent at my parish? Is there actually a collection of, you know, first generation immigrants 
where the parents go in Spanish and then the second generation goes in English. Like, I don't know. I, I can think of a bunch of different examples, but there are ways where we're, in, we're enraged by the diversity in our church rather than um, falling in love with the fact that we belong to a church that reflects what we really believe about humanity. Um, right. It's why, I mean, it's one of the reasons every day I wake up and I'm like, you know what? I don't care what's going on in my church and that some of our, our you know, leadership leans into politics much more than I wish they would. Um, I belong to a church that has a heart um, that really belongs to Christ and his mother. And, and that, that's it for me. And that's where I want to be. Lewis, do you have any comments you want to add before we get into some audience questions? Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to George Weigel's book, um, Letters to a Young Catholic, which is just amazing on so many different levels. Uh, I was amazed when he quoted what well, he doesn't quote there, but uh, he articulates that there's a projection that um, there could be, I believe the number is well north of 400 million Catholics within a few decades, 400 million Roman Catholics in the continent of Africa alone, right? Then we think about the United States. Um, I know that there are very large, you know, black Catholic, or excuse me, Catholic black populations uh, in Maryland, uh, in Louisiana, in Washington, DC, in Chicago, uh, in Detroit, in Florida, other places. And folks haven't been ex exposed to that. Um, those experiences um, really matter. And I think what we're thinking about on a personal level is, Lord, I know that I am a sinful person. I know that I am, I am fallen. I know that I, I carry uh, biases and stereotypes and what have you, um, or, or that I'm unaware of other people's pain that I, that I encounter. And so asking the Lord and the Holy Spirit to cleanse and enlarge our hearts so that we reflect the heart of God. We should be looking at George Floyd, particularly uh, towards the end of the video um, that I haven't quite seen yet, but one of our team was telling me about it, where he's calling out mama, mama, okay? We should be looking at him with the mind of Christ as our brother. And how would we feel if our biological brother, or even on a heightened level, our spiritual brother, went through that kind of, of unjust violence, went through that kind of brutality? And how did the Blessed Mother feel seeing that for her son, her, her, son, her, her son George? I'm not saying he's a saint. I don't know about his background. It doesn't matter because we believe that regardless of one's background, regardless of what one's done, you could be the worst person in the world. But if you, at the moment of death, you ask for God's mercy, he will give it to you. He hungers, the Lord Jesus Christ hungered for the heart and the love of George Floyd and every person. It doesn't matter if he was a murderer, it doesn't matter. He is still a person made in the image and likeness of God. We're all entitled to defense of self, defense of others, very important, but we need to we need to look at other people, especially those that don't look like us, with the mind of Christ. Um, and we need to do that better. I need to do that better. Um, and we all as Catholics need to do that better. So it's an opportunity to examine one's conscience. Um, so we have a lot of great audience questions. Um, unfortunately, we don't have time to answer all of them. But generally, there is a very consistent theme that I'm seeing. So I kind of want to put um, a, a bunch of these questions into one. Um, obviously, it goes without saying that the Catholic Church stands in solidarity um, with, black, with Black individuals and against racism in any form. But as Lewis, as you mentioned, um, there are organizations who are fundamentally pushing an un-Catholic uh, side agenda. So how can we as Catholics, especially maybe at a parish level, how can we engage in this movement in a way that's consistent with church teaching? Matsi, you wanna go first or? Um, no, I think, I think you could talk about, you know, the, the dichotomy, you know? Sure, yeah. So we as Catholics, um, both in the church and within lay organizations, we need a re rebirth. Um, we need a rebirth of, of the true civil rights movement in the United States. Um, Christ Medicus is uh, working to do that, particularly when it comes to the right of religious freedom and conscience and healthcare and protecting the civil rights and human dignity of patients uh, and consumers uh, and medical doctors and hospitals from conception and natural death, vitally important. 
but we need to do that across the board. We need a true civil rights movement connected to the old civil rights movement, which has always been based on the natural law and belief that we have rights from God. Um, I think it's important for faith communities to come together in prayer uh, and to seek healing, understanding, reconciliation. That's all very important. You can think about even uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that saw a, a reasonable level of success in South Africa. That's all very important. But uh, the person posing that question is exactly right. Um, one of the major groups um, that is engaged uh, on this issue of police brutality um, has uh, has a express um, uh, agenda on its on its website um, that would call for grave grave violations of the dignity of the human person uh, and ultimately a collapse of all human and civil rights in the United States. That's what they're going for. Their agenda is consistent with the culture of death. That's not a group that we should be bringing into our parishes or into the Catholic Church. Uh, their agenda is not consistent with life. It's not consistent with civil rights. Uh, and that's a problem. Uh, additionally, the idea that we should be defunding the police is absolutely ridiculous. The only way that we protect the human and civil rights of folks like George Floyd and other people throughout the United States is based on the rule of law. So those things should be rejected. But we should try to find common cause with other faith-based groups and civil rights groups um, that, that share this belief in the human person based on the natural law, based on the truth uh, and the biological uh, and human realities of the human person. Yeah, I'll tag on to that. Just always remember that you're Catholic first. Um, it's really tempting to get into politics and to think that there's one place where you're gonna land. You are made to be uncomfortable as a Christian. You will never fit in. And the moment that you're fitting in and really comfortable, you need to look in the mirror and analyze why you're so comfortable because that means you're giving in one way or another. Um, and having a structure of priorities where you understand what you're looking for in these groups don't make don't be fooled into thinking that because you've given a donation or um posted something on instagram that you're standing in solidarity when you haven't actually done anything to stand in solidarity if you haven't called someone checked in on your neighbor figured out like hey i don't maybe understand the what 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 someone of color is thinking right now let me ask them that is so much more valuable than posting something on social media. So much more valuable and so much more true to what we believe in the incarnational reality of the relationships and the way that God wants us to be in communion with each other and with him. He wants you to embody that change, not just post about it. So I would absolutely agree with Lewis and just add on that it's not about the organizations that exist. It's about what you actually want to do with your life and what you're physically going to bring into the world once you have this new information and where you're going to gather your information. Um, the what I call the sin of intersectionality. You know, there's a reason why I'm not engaged in a lot of the um, civil rights groups that fight for for immigrants. There is some overlap there that I find inconsistent with my Catholic beliefs, and I cannot promote that knowing that they're also promoting things that are going to be hurtful to my church or that um, slander my church. I just, I can't do that, not in good conscience. And so for me, I make certain choices about how I do advocate for these rights, how I do advocate for these issues, either through my church or by just being an independent voice, by talking about them within the framework of what I believe about the human dignity of, 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 every individual um, and kind of trying to challenge both myself and others to think outside the boxes that have been pre-constructed for us by our society. Right, and, and if I could add on to that, do we have time, Rosemary, for 30 seconds from, yeah. So Monty is completely correct. And one, uh, my brother and, and hero, uh, Willie Cueto, who's out of Miami, Florida, um, he talks about how the much of the African-American and, and the Chicano, Latino, Hispanic community, um, who is both communities who are highly Christian, highly religious, have a heightened sense of God. I, I believe hunger for this opportunity to participate in the advance of life and the advance of human dignity. Um, and we need to do, I know that I personally, Lewis Brown here in Washington, D.C., I need to do a better job of engaging African-Americans here in the district and in, in the local area much more. Same thing with the Chicano Latino community. I need to engage them more. And there's a hunger for their out that and to the degree that the Holy Spirit's calling you to it, 
um, do what you can to bring them into this movement that's based in the truth. They're hungering for it. I hunger for it. I think our brothers and sisters hung for it. We have to do it better. And we can't be afraid. We can't be afraid um, of what God's asking us in the middle of this pandemic. We can't be afraid of what God's asking for us uh, in the middle of this opportunity for racial reconciliation and healing. Thank you. Um, Monsi Lewis, thank you for sharing your, your insights and your perspective on this, you know, very obviously important issue. Um, I think you, the points that you raised were very insightful. Um, and I hope that our audience watching feels moved and uh, feels called to action, um, whether that be talking to your, your priests or those within your parish um, or researching um, online the organizations that are fighting against um, racism, but that are also aligned um, with Catholic, uh, Catholic, the Catholic Church's teaching. Um, Lewis, you said, if you're not praying, you're not doing anything. Um, so I'd like to end with a prayer. Um, one of my favorites is the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel, which I think is appropriate sure. in this time. Um, so if, if, if Monty and Lewis, if you'll join me in this prayer and our audience as well, just take a moment um, and pray together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel. May God rebuke and do thou of the heavenly host by the power of God. Cast in and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.